So Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Luke 1, verse 26. This is God's holy word. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. That's as far as we'll read this morning in this part of God's word. Well, friends, this uh, section of Luke chapter 1 that we've just heard read again, uh, this part of Luke's gospel is traditionally called the Annunciation. The Annunciation. That's a fancy word for the announcement. Uh, They're really synonymous. The announcement. When I was growing up, every school day began with us singing the national anthem, and then over the intercom, the announcements. Uh, Every day we heard those announcements. This morning, after worship, we will take time for announcements. Uh, Those announcements are printed in the bulletin. Announcements. There they are. Uh, Do we pay attention to the announcements? Now, sometimes we miss something and then someone says, well, it was in the announcements. We weren't paying attention. When you hear uh, the announcements in church... But maybe you just sit back and you just, in your mind, just say, boring, boring. It just doesn't have any interest for you. But what, if, what about if the announcement was about a congregational trip to the hockey game, free tickets? Would that get your attention? You'd be interested in that announcement, perhaps. Or are you someone, that, are you someone that's just interested in what you're interested in? Have you ever thought of that? Are you just interested in what you're just interested in? Well, you say, of course I am. I'm interested in what I'm interested in. 
But if we make that an absolute thing that I'm only going to be interested in the things that I'm interested in, that is actually really a pretty arrogant, uh, proud, and often foolish way to be and to think that you'd only be interested in what I'm interested in. One of my cousins was very interested when he was a teenager in getting his driver's license. He was very interested in driving a car. But he was not interested at all in car maintenance. He wasn't interested in checking the oil in the engine until... On the 401, his engine seized on the highway and he blew a piston rod right through the engine block. Maybe there are things that we should be interested in that we're not. During disasters or crises of different kinds, our phones, as it happened this week uh, during prayer meeting, our phones may start beeping, alerting us to a PSA, a public service announcement. And our level of attention is probably directly related to our sense of personal involvement or risk. And lots of times, it's just an annoyance to us. Sometimes we just ignore it. But other times, we'd be hanging on every word. Well, here, as Luke begins his gospel, he's continuing in chapter 1, we have this great announcement by the angel Gabriel, who came in the sixth month, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel sent to a young woman from Nazareth in northern Israel. It is an announcement that is similar in many ways to Gabriel's announcement that we've already considered to Zechariah earlier in chapter 1. There's much that's the same or similar And yet there is so much now in this announcement, beginning at verse 26, that is utterly unique. In these verses, the Holy Spirit, through the writer Luke, is revealing what was revealed to Mary concerning what is generally called the virgin birth. It's more accurately the virginal conception Of Christ. We'll get to that later. The birth was an ordinary birth. It's the conception here that is the point. It is the announcement of the way the incarnation, what we call the incarnation, took place. Incarnation is the theological word used to capture what John wrote in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. How did that happen? That's our passage this morning. Not that long ago, we considered those faithful sayings. Do you remember the first one? Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world 
to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ Jesus came into the world. How? How? Well, Paul in 1 Timothy 3 goes on to say, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in the flesh. This is an amazing thing. But for something so amazing, so stupendous, these verses are remarkably simple and few. There is a beautiful and solemn simplicity to these words. There is a holy chasteness to them. There is a dignified delicateness in the angel's announcement. There is nothing here, nothing of the vulgarity and the baseness of pagan mythologies in their so-called virgin births. In their accounts that are often raised in the discussion of Luke chapter 1. It's just so obvious. It's just their so-called gods having their way with women in a base and often bizarre, humanized way. There's no similarity at all. And also here there is nothing of complicated philosophical speculation with words and language that none of us can understand. No, this is beautiful, chaste simplicity. In God's wisdom, we have enough, not too much. We have what is true. We have what is infallible. We have what is profitable. And we have what is praiseworthy. And at the same time, we have what is so profound that it is beyond explanation or complete comprehension. In 1930, J. Gresham Machen, a Christian New Testament scholar, wrote a classic book on the virgin birth. It's 400 pages long and small type. But he said at the beginning of that book, according to the universal belief of the historic Christian church, Jesus of Nazareth was born without human father, being conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The belief of the church in the virgin birth is a fact of history which no one denies. How is that fact to be explained? He goes on to deal in his book with different explanations that don't believe in the virginal conception. But this is his view. The church came to believe in the virgin birth for the simple reason that the virgin birth was a fact. The reason why the creed, the Apostles' Creed, came to say that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary is that he was actually so conceived and born. Beloved, we take God at his word. Even though, as we think about this part of God's word and Christ's life, 
We echo Mary's words. How can this be? How can this be? For this morning, so much more we could say. I can have a year of sermons out of these verses. For this morning, five brief, and they will be brief, five brief characteristics of this amazing announcement made to Mary. First, this was a divine announcement. A divine announcement. Like the rest of the Bible, these verses tell us about God. First and foremost, this is about God. This was a divine announcement. It came from God, and it was about what God would do. And we should just take a step back and perhaps say what should be obvious. This announcement simply assumes the existence of the true and living triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Prick these verses at any place, and they bleed supernaturalism. Gabriel is an angel sent by God. In verse 19, you remember, he says, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you, and to tell you this good news. The teaching or the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus is just one example. It is a supreme example, but just one example of the thoroughgoing supernaturalism of the Bible. The Bible begins in the beginning, God. And that is always where we need to begin. If we don't begin with God, we'll never get it right. It is so clear that the denials of the virgin birth today that we hear really, really became popular at the same time that supernaturalism was being denied. When supernaturalism was being replaced by humanism, enlightenment humanism, being wise in their own eyes, philosophers began to try to think and live apart from God. With Darwin's theory of evolution in their back pocket, professing to be wise, they became fools. Fools who say in their heart, there is no God. And many in the church sadly and weakly caved into their influence, not wanting to seem unsophisticated or uncultured or unscientific. Liberals gave up a belief in miracles. And Machen said, the miracle which is usually singled out is the virgin birth. It was like a touchstone. You could go to someone and say, do you believe in the virgin birth? And it separated Christians from liberals. How could you believe that, said the liberals. The liberal preacher, says Machen, insists on the possibility of believing in Christ, no matter which view is adopted as to the manner of his entrance into the world. Is not the person the same no matter how he was born? It is true that some men have denied the virgin birth and yet have accepted the New Testament account 
of Jesus' supernatural person, but such men are exceedingly few and far between. The overwhelming majority of those who reject the virgin birth reject also the whole supernatural content of the New Testament. In our day, Richard Dawkins said, the virgin birth, he's a renowned atheist, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, the Old Testament miracles are all freely used for religious propaganda and they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. Well, unless you become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom. In the wisdom of the world, the world knew not God and became fools. Beloved, the supernatural just is. The supernatural just is. Romans 1, Paul mentions this, teaches this, shows that there is no excuse, no matter how much people press down the truth in unrighteousness. There's no excuse. We know God exists. We are made in God's image The most unnatural thing for a human being is to deny the supernatural. We believe in the God of creation, the God of a universal flood, the God of the parting of the Red Sea, the God of the great fish who swallowed Jonah, the God who raises the dead, and the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Beloved, these verses in Luke chapter 1 tell us something marvelous, but not unbelievable. Mary, unlike Zechariah that we considered before, does not doubt that this will happen. But she understandably wonders how it will happen. And here is the answer that was given to her. And here is the answer for us for this and for so many other issues and questions that we may have. Luke 1, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with whom? With God. Or more literally, no word from God is impossible. He can do all his holy will. Augustine said, let us grant that God can do something which we confess our inability to investigate in such things, the whole reason of the deed is the power of the doer. How often it is, friends, that our two great problems are the problems that Jesus pointed out to people of his day. Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine: You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. This was a divine announcement. But secondly, it was a fearful announcement. It was a fearful announcement. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. 
And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Mary was greatly troubled. In verse 12, Zechariah was gripped with fear when the angel appeared. Later, we'll read of the shepherds who are going to be terrified when the angels appear. We considered this before, but it's worth repeating. When even a holy angel, as a representative of the holy God, approaches a person, the response is one of fear. And it's not just the fear of the majestic holiness of God, but even beyond that, the moral holiness of God. The kind of fear that Adam didn't have in that sense before the fall. When he had that fellowship with God unbroken by sin. But a fear that human beings do have and should have after the fall. On our own in sin, without this kind of confrontation, sin blinds our eyes and dulls our consciences. Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's not a compliment. But when God reveals himself, then it's like Isaiah. Woe to me. I cried, I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Or like Peter in the New Testament. Interestingly, but as you think about it, understandably, after that miracle of the great catch of fish, filling the boat so that they began to sink, and Peter makes the right connection and deduction. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And this is so important, beloved, because without this sense of fear, without this acknowledgement of being accountable to God and sinful in his sight, then I'm not surprised this announcement to Mary will make you yawn. You won't care. You'll be more concerned about your next meal or your next paycheck or your next social activity. This whole good news stuff will be lost on you. Lost until the day comes when you stand before God. And then no preacher, no parent, no friend needs to try to convince you then. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? This is a fearful announcement. And yet to Mary, to Zechariah before, and to the shepherds after, what do we read? Fear not. Don't be afraid. 
I love what one writer said, an older writer, fear not, sings its way through Scripture. You find it all through Scripture, fear not. This is, uh, but now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. Why? For I have redeemed you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. The fear, the rightful fear that sinners have face to face with the holy God who is above us and who in our sin is against us, this same God comes to be with us. And that's what we're reading about here. This is the heart of the announcement. This is a divine announcement. It's a fearful announcement, but it is a miraculous announcement. The birth of Zechariah and Elizabeth's son was miraculous. She was barren. The birth of Isaac in the Old Testament was miraculous. They were as good as dead. But this conception of the Lord Jesus would be what one writer said, uniquely miraculous. This is uniquely miraculous. You will conceive and give birth to a son. But how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Beloved, here is nothing less than how the eternal Son of God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory with the Father and the Spirit, took to himself a full and true human nature, body and soul. He would be born of Mary and yet would be at the same time the son of the Most High. The catechism asks, how did Christ being the Son of God become man? Christ the Son of God became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. A divine person, the Son, fully God. He didn't then start being God, and he didn't stop being God. But from that moment of conception, he became what he never was, fully man. And it's mysterious. It's mysterious. The angel uses the word overshadow. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. It harkens back to creation when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. It reminds us of the Shekinah glory cloud of the Old Testament. There's an overshadowing. The presence of God, and yet the mysterious work of God. By this work of the Holy Spirit, the angel says, the one who would be born would be great. We, we read about John, he would be great in the sight of the Lord. I, I think that this, this is significant. Here, the child is simply great. He is great in and of himself. There it was great in the sight of the Lord. Here, he will be great. He will be called what he truly is, the Son of God, the Holy One. The Holy One. 
There are four ways that human beings have come to be on the earth. You ever thought of that? Four ways. From the dust. From a rib. From a mother and father. And what we read here uniquely in Luke 1, 35. All the descendants of Adam in God's covenant arrangement of his dealings with humanity, all of the descendants of Adam after the fall, born in the ordinary way, are in Adam fallen and guilty. Romans 5, 12 and following. But this one is the Holy One. Made like us in every way, yet without sin. But here there's mystery as well, and theologians have gone back and forth for centuries on it. Calvin wrote, we make Christ free, we understand Christ free of all stain, not just because he was begotten of his mother without copulation with man, just sometimes people argue back and forth, but, but because he was sanctified by the Spirit, that this generation, this act of conception might be pure and undefiled, as would have been true before Adam's fall. God did uniquely what was necessary so that Christ could come, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, and yet not liable to the covenantal guilt of our first father, Adam. Made like us in every way, yet without sin. This is the miracle of miracles. In Jesus' conception, we have the divine answer to the question in Job 14, for who can bring a clean thing of an unclean? No one, says Job. We cannot, but God can. Mary, Mary, it's as if the angel says, Mary, Mary, don't forget who God is. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. That the Son of God would be Emmanuel, God with us, is amazing. But it begs the question, why? Why? I think we jump too quickly sometimes because we, we've, we've thought about this before, we've heard about this before, but we jump too quickly and it's good to stop. Why did the Son of God come? He, did he come simply to judge? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, Jesus said, but to save the world through him. Fourthly, this is a gracious announcement. It is a gracious announcement. Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century wrote a book called Cur Deus Homo. It just means, why God man? Why did God become man? Or why the God man? Well, trustworthy saying number one, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
The Son of God was conceived in Mary in order to be that second Adam, the head and representative of a new humanity. And for that to happen, for people to be redeemed and saved, human sin must be paid. Not by an animal, not by ourselves, thankfully, in eternity, but graciously and mercifully by a substitute, the Lamb of God. This is a gracious announcement. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. There is all the grace of God wrapped up in a name. Jesus, the Lord saves. Others had that name or similar to it, Joshua, but of this Jesus, it was said, she will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus because he it is who will save his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21. The sinlessness of Christ is crucial. It qualified him to be a sacrifice for others, having no sin of his own to pay for. And it provides a righteousness to be given to his people as well. He came to suffer for sin, not his own. He came in the graciousness of humiliation. We need to see the humiliation of Christ here, even in this wonder of the virginal conception. The angel did not go to Jerusalem or Rome, or Constantinople, or Alexandria, but to Nazareth. Nazareth, John 1.46, can anything good come from there? Think of the most backwater town you know. Nazareth. In Scotland, they would say, or Ireland, the back of beyond. Can anything good come from Nazareth? The angel wasn't sent to a palace, but to a poor, engaged couple who later couldn't even afford the usual sacrifice of a lamb for a new baby, Leviticus 12.8. The angel didn't come to a Meghan Markle or a Taylor Swift, but to a nobody, a simple God-fearing girl named Mary. And more on Mary next time, Lord willing. You see, this was all part, not of what could have been his rightful claim to greatness, but part of his humiliation. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition. God the Son suffered such humiliation because he is humble. And because he is humble, as he is humble, he is approachable. Fear not. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why the God-man? So that there could be a perfect mediator, God and man in one person, undivided, unconfused, the mediator. To be the Christ, 
to be the perfect prophet, for in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. If you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen the Father. To be the priest who would sacrifice himself as the Lamb of God and pray for his people, and to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end, verse 33. All of the Old Testament is coming, coming together in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Listen to these words from Hebrews again. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is all of grace. It's all grace. It was fitting for a salvation by grace that Christ would be conceived in this way. Man had sinned and was completely helpless to make things right, one writer said. The first gospel promise excludes man altogether. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Salvation is of the Lord. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grace of this virginal conception in Christ. Well, there's so much more we could say, but let me just ask now, what about you? This is all about Jesus. This is all about Jesus, but what about you? What about our children? What about our loved ones? This is an an amazing announcement about Jesus and how he came into the world. But what about my life? How can I be one of those fear not people who knows that the Lord is with me? Well, here and last and briefly, this is such a hopeful announcement. This is such a hopeful announcement. Why? Do you remember the other time when possible and impossible are mentioned in the Gospels? There's another time. Possible, impossible. It's Luke 18. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard him asked, who then can be saved? Who can be saved? Too many think it's easy to be saved. Just raise your hand, come to the front, say a prayer. Who, who today, who in our circles really thinks much about 1 Peter 4.18? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous are saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Do you know what it takes for someone to be saved? We just don't 
need some good advice. We don't just need a kindly offered warm meal or clean shirt. No human program, no human preaching can save anyone. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You know what needs to happen for someone to be saved? You must be born again. You must be born again. It's because we forget that or don't consider it enough that we're not as thankful as we should be. That we think, well, I've done all these things too, you know. It's when we forget this that we're not as prayerful as we should be for others. And we need to do things and we need to speak and we need to witness and we need to pray. Because no one is saved because I speak to them or you speak to them or I'm nice to them. You must be born again. And so Jesus in Luke 18, in response to that question, who can be saved, says this. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Hallelujah. God can save sinners. There is every hope with God in Christ. By the Spirit. There are times when I wonder about my own salvation. I think, can you really be saved? Can all this really be true? And when I look at myself, I'm not very encouraged. But then I come back to what the Bible tells me about salvation God saves sinners. Jesus saves sinners. It's a free gift. We are saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But better yet, we are saved by Jesus Christ through faith. He saves. What a hope there is for our loved ones and our families. Hope for those who maybe have given up hope in one way or another. Impossible with people, possible with God. Don't give up hope. Keep praying. Because in Christ's virginal conception, we have a token and picture of our own new birth. The same divine sovereign power is at work when any sinner is saved. The power of God the Holy Spirit. But as many as received him, To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And to all those born again by the grace and spirit of God, listen, listen to the angel say, fear not, the Lord is with you.